Hey guys, thanks to you for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. Two live streams today, but it's all good. There's a lot of stuff happening in the world, so lots to talk about. Um, we just averted World War III for almost, uh, you know, triggering an Article 5 from a Ukrainian missile, which is kind of funny. They're telling us it was a Russian missile, but it turned out to be a Ukrainian missile that landed in Poland. Uh, but we're all still here, so I guess we should be grateful about that anyway um i figured it would be a good time to have you know one of the foremost experts that i know uh on you know foreign policy in general but then specifically having to do with china because uh the libertarian party of new hampshire put out a couple tweets earlier this week that really ruffled a lot of feathers and started a whole controversy got a bunch of people talking about us so wanted to talk about some of that stuff he is of course Pat McFarlane, and I can't believe I forgot the name of your new show. I was, I was almost going to say Liberty Weekly, but you, you, you just changed the name of your show. It's not Liberty Weekly anymore. What is it now? Yeah, well, you don't know how many times I've messed that up myself. It's, <laughs> it's Vital Descent now with, with Patrick McFarlane. It's on screen. You can see the title is in the lower left corner, and it's covered by my name tag. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. should have removed the names, but oh, well. Vital Descent uh, with Patrick McFarlane. So how are you doing anyway, Patrick? How, how's everything going? Yeah, doing good, man. I've I've um I've been a little behind on stuff lately, but I'm I'm getting ready for a trial because I'm an attorney and you know regular life and the world goes on. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm I'm starting a new job finally on uh, November 28th. I haven't had a job since May, which has been by choice, but um, I'm gonna start working full time again. So um, won't be able to schedule episodes as frequently. You know what kind of sucks is. I don't know if it's because I'm a Russian propagandist or a, a, a Chinese puppet or what, but I have ever since I left my job in May, my viewership and everything just dropped right off. I used to be getting really good views and now I'm lucky if I hit a thousand views on a video. Um, and it was right. I remember I did a show with Ryan in March about all the political connections to Ukraine um, with Joe Biden and uh, Hunter Biden and Mitt Romney and all that. And after that, things started going downhill a little bit. And then ever since May, like everything's dropped off and I'll get a couple videos that get really good views. But outside of that, like nothing. And it, it sucks because I thought, OK, I'm going to take some time off. And so I'll finally be able to schedule all the interviews I want. But everything is just like dried up over the summer. And now that I'm going back to work soon, like things are picking up again and i'm finally getting interviews it's just it's it's how life goes you know like <laughs> when when you have time you can't uh you, nothing seems to come around and then when things come around you don't have time to um you know to do them anymore it's just how life is i guess yeah it is it is weird that way i mean i, I kind of my numbers are down a little bit too even with the rebrand and i i think it might be because of the fall you know because people are busy they got kids going back to school and i'm busy myself but it it just in general it's i don't know if it's the lack of vitamin d in the sun but i've been a little little down lately just not really you know you can only go on for so long thinking about the impending doom of the world and uh it starts to get to you so it's like going to things and i i had the pleasure of meeting you twice this summer getting to go to things like that and networking really is important to to charge your batteries oh yeah no and, and you know all the fights that take place on twitter 
when we're all actually in the same room, I mean, not that you and I ever got in fights on Twitter, but, you know, the, the broader liberty movement, like you think everybody hates each other, but then you go to these things where you have people from Reason and people from Cato and people from the Libertarian Institute, people from the Mises Caucus, and they're all hanging out in the same room and laughing and being friendly. It's It's very refreshing to see that and to remind ourselves that, you know, Twitter isn't real life. I know that's the thing we say all the time, but it's also actually true when you go to these things and actually meet people yeah dude i today actually i um i downloaded this app that blocks websites during the workday, mm-hmm. and i think it's called cold turkey but it locks me from using twitter during work hours and today was pretty cool so maybe i'll yeah. keep doing it you don't even have to get banned off of twitter like i did you can just yeah. block it you know <laughs> <laughs> Well, if we keep talking about the Uyghur genocide, maybe uh, we'll get banned from Twitter. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so I guess let's just start off with that, even though there's more pressing news going on, but we'll get to that at the end. Let's start off with the Uyghur stuff. So I'm going to pull up a tweet here that the uh, Libertarian Party in New Hampshire put out, um, and this caused a lot of chaos and made a lot of people upset. It says, the information surrounding the Uyghur genocide is sketchy at best. They just use it to manipulate you into hating a group of people that you know nothing about and to propagandize you into supporting any future conflict with them. China is not a threat to your freedom. Currently, that has 429 quote tweets and uh, just over 2,200 likes. Uh, But lots of people got really upset about that. Lots of people in the liberty movement. uh, And um, I didn't actually make that tweet, but I did help come up with the idea because I, I... a couple other guys who run the account now we were talking about how man like the right is really gearing up for war with china and they're really not backing off from it so we should start you know injecting some of our uh you know our opinion into the zeitgeist and try to get them talking about things especially while the republican primary is going to start heating up and everything like we should push this into the conversation so that they at least you know have a different opinion being shown to them because for the most part, the left doesn't actually have much of a different opinion about it. And then, you know, even the dissident right wing news basic, I mean, they're, they're some of the hardest pushers of this stuff. So there's nowhere else that they're going to get this opinion from unless we do something. So as usual, libertarian party, New Hampshire led with chaos and pushed that into the conversation and um, blew everything up. But you and I actually did an episode, uh, I think seven months ago, where we talked about this a little bit. I watched your document documentary called Stain of the Century. Um, and really what it comes down to is that we're, we're not denying anything. We're not saying that anything is impossible or is definitively not happening. There just hasn't been proof given for these outrageous claims they're making and um in the real world when you're going to make outrageous claims and especially if you're going to act on them like we have by uh you know sanctioning and uh putting um you know trade restrictions and stuff on countries and considering them our number one enemy and being really aggressive toward them there should be substantial evidence for these claims and there really isn't so i was wondering if you could just say right now what is definitively true about how the Uyghurs are being treated in China? Like, what do we actually know for a fact beyond just eyewitness testimony? What has been 
actually investigated and confirmed to be the case. Well, I think that the Chinese government does admit a lot of things that are occurring in Xinjiang. And I, I guess just from the outset, just so people who aren't familiar with this and haven't read or or looked into it or listened to our, our first interview, which actually I think is one of the best, in my opinion, the best I've ever given on this topic. Xinjiang is the westernmost province in China. The name means the new frontier. The Uyghurs are the largest ethnic minority that lives in that region. It's a region about the size of France. Most of it is a des is kind of a deserty area. It's not very, um, you know, it's not lush farmland or anything like that. So the Uyghurs are a Turkic ethnic minority. There's other ethnic groups in the area, including the Han Chinese, but the Uyghurs are the largest. I think there's around 13 or 14 million of them. And it's been claimed for a few years now that the Chinese uh, Communist Party is committing a genocide against the Uyghurs. And the the one the one thing that we can say is happening that's been admitted by the Chinese is that there is there is an assimilation campaign that is in progress in Xinjiang. Um, there are people in jail-like detention facilities. We don't know how many people there are. Um, Adrian Zenz, which is uh, the the West's foremost ec expert on this, who, as far as I know, has never been to Xinjiang. He's a German anthropologist, and he is, says and has made this claim, and the media just ran with it, that there is more than a million Uyghurs in these detention facilities. And we can't say that for sure. It was a study, like the, the banner study that they quote when they say that number is based on interviews with a total of eight people. And they went through, what they did is they went through these villages in Xinjiang and they interviewed people, one person, and they said, well, how many people from your community are missing? And they estimated how many people were missing. And so they went to eight communities and did that and then extrapolated the number. And then <clears throat> they claimed basically, oh, well, we're estimating over a million people. This is corroborated because we got a leaked document from someone connected to a terrorist group that supposes to be, it purports to be a Chinese Communist Party internal government demographic document listing the population in these facilities. Maybe at one point in time, I don't know if there were a million people, but that would be almost a tenth of the entire Uyghur population in Xinjiang. So it's very... Um, it's an unproven claim by people that aren't incredibly trustworthy. But we do know there, there are people in these camps. Um, China says that this is a part of a terrorism fighting program. And so, I mean, read American War on Terror because the Chinese modeled their war of terror after ours. There were communications after 9-11 between the United States government and the Chinese government talking about how they support our war on terror they try to emulate it, but this goes back into, I mean, really long history of Uyghur unrest in the area. And there's this group called ETIM, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, and they are they were on the U.S. terrorist uh, list of being a terrorist organization, but they were recently removed from being on that list. And China views them as a terrorist group. They're a separatist group. Um, and, and what they purport to do is to free Xinjiang from Chinese rule. 
and uh, create, um, you know, a, a separate state. And so if you, Uyghur groups will call uh, Xinjiang, they will call it East Turkestan, and they have their own government in exile that is um, supported by the United States, um, the Eastern Turkestan, gov I don't know if they call it the government in exile, but it connects to a bunch of NGOs like the World Uyghur Congress. And um, these these NGOs receive funding and support from the National Endowment for Democracy, which is a U.S. NGO that basically is admitted to be um, to be doing what the CIA used to do covertly, except now it does it overtly. And basically, it's the how the CIA instigates regime change in foreign countries. So to circle around back to your question, after giving some of that background. We do know that there's people in facilities. According to UN documents, the average period of detention for people in these facilities is from two to 18 months. So this is a catch and release program where people, Uyghurs, are put into these facilities. They're, if we believe the Chinese Communist Party, they're only taught vocational skills and they're de-radicalized in a way that is supposed to bring them closer to Han Chinese culture. And then they're released back to their homes. And this is because when, when Deng Xiaoping instituted these reforms in China, it brought an immense number, almost a billion people out of destitute poverty. And there was concern about making sure that all, every single part of China was able to uh, modernize and enjoy uh, in that raised standard of living. And in a way, Xinjiang kind of got left behind a little bit. And it's a very rural culture that is is different and separate from from the Chinese, and so they're attempting to to bring Xinjiang back into the country and to modernize it. And a large part of this too is the the Chinese land-based Belt and Road Initiative, where they're really trying to create an economic corridor that runs through the Islamic countries and into Europe to bring it to bring China into the world stage and become. Um, you know, uh, a multipolar power. And so on one level, if the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative is like the crown jewel of their economic development program, it really wouldn't make sense for the Chinese Communist Party to wholesale murder Uyghurs, which are, they're, they're Muslim. So it, it just doesn't exactly make sense. And in fact, there were a lot of resolutions there were a lot of com uh, countries that were signing resolutions condemning the Chinese Communist Party for the Uyghur, their mistreatment and, and genocide, claimed genocide of the Uyghurs. But there were even more countries who signed a pledge supporting China. And I believe it was, I don't know if it was 72 countries versus 22 countries. And of those 72 countries, a large portion of them were Islamic countries. So... Obviously, that's bad, <laughs> even on a, you know, even that this is what drives me crazy about all this stuff is, you know, if you say Saddam Hussein has WMDs that he's going to give to Al Qaeda without any proof, that should be met with the answer, okay, give me some evidence, you know, uh, otherwise I'm not going to believe you. People take that as, oh, you mean you think that Saddam Hussein is a great guy and that the Iraqi government, you know, protects human rights and cares about human flourishing and property and, you know, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Like, 
No, I don't think that. I don't think Saddam Hussein's a good guy at all. I think he's a brutal, murdering dictator. And I think the Iraqi government sucked under his rule. And I don't have anything nice to say about the Chinese government, the CCP. I know they're an authoritarian, uh, autocratic nightmare. However, that doesn't mean that you can make unsubstantiated claims without pushback and proof, you know, some some sort of evidence. And that's, I mean, every time with this type of stuff, when you say, okay, we're looking for some concrete evidence that this is true. That's what you're always met with is like, oh, you're a CCP shill. You think what's happening to the Uyghurs is good. No, of course not. Like, we're upset about the government in New Hampshire that it's not free enough. Like, of course we hate the CCP. But first of all, the CCP is in China. You know, I'm more worried about the FBI and the government here in the United States that can actually take away my liberties. I'm not worried about the CCP or about, you know, the Iranian government or the Russian government. Like these are, they're not really my concern, but also like, if you're going to, if you're going to make crazy claims, it, um, you know, out, what's the, what's the saying? It's, um, um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. This should be just kind of basic <laughs> stuff. The funny thing is that, man, my voice is really going to hell. Cause I, I almost died when you were doing your intro. I like did that thing where you breathe in your own saliva. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Anyways. Um, my apologies for that, but yeah, so this is, it, it's just funny because when LPNH put out that tweet, there were a lot of people that were outraged in the, the responses, the replies, but I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm an expert on the situation. I mean, I've read a lot about it and, and I feel like I, I'm versed enough to explain it and to make cogent arguments about it. Um, and I'm familiar with a lot of, a lot of what is said about it in the topics and statistics. I'm not an expert on it, but, um, a lot of these people who are responding don't know the first thing about it. And they know that they saw a BBC report which have all these scary quotes from Adrian Zenz. And we know that they probably saw one of, there was a, a footage that was going around of a bunch of Uyghur prisoners in blue, and they were kneeling by some box cards or something like that. And of course that evokes very strong imagery. Right. And, and a lot of assumptions as well. But what a lot of these people probably didn't know is that even the most staunch Uyghur supporters and activists even they are not claiming wholesale killings by the CCP. They don't even try to make that legal case. Under the Genocide Convention, because when, when you're talking about this, what it really boils down to is the Genocide Convention. There are five types of genocides. One is killing members of the group. Well, we don't, we don't have you know, widespread wholesale killings. Um, two is causing serious bodily or mental harm to the members of the group. Um, now <clears throat> they haven't tried to make that case on, on a legal case. Three is deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And that in the last part of that, the in part part is what they, they try to say. I mean, technically the killing of one person could, just by reading this, the killing of one person could be destroying um, a group. Um, so they don't, they don't try to make that case either. 
that would be like your Dachau. That would be your Auschwitz or something like that. A camp where people are getting, you know, they're starving to death, dropping. They have all these, um, these physical ailments or they're being exterminated. Um, so that's the, in the first three, four would be imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And this is the element that they try to make the case on. And right. we'll go through that. But number five is forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, which might be plausible if it wasn't admitted that, you know, whatever children are going to these boarding schools are being returned to their communities. It's only for a period of time. And furthermore, if we were, um, if that were to be genocide against, you know, if that charge of genocide were to be sustainable, well, then the United States better look behind them, right? Because we did that to the Native Americans. Canada has done that. Australia is currently doing that with the Aboriginals, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a whole bunch of that. So they try to hang their hat entirely on number four, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And that goes into Adrian Zenz's cooked numbers about IUD insertions, which he basically, I think we covered this in the first interview, but his claim is that um, in, I think it was in 2019 or 2018, he said that 87% of all net IUD insertions happened in Xinjiang, which is impossible. Well, first of all, what does net IUD insertions even mean, right? He's saying that of the number of women in China who had an IUD removed versus the number of women in China that had an IUD inserted. And for people who don't know, an IUD is an intrauterine device. It's a birth control device that goes inside the uterus and prevents births. Now, we all know about the one-child policy in China. Absolutely abhorrent program. Um, you know, I, I don't know, like... The details about it, it, I'm sure that there was, um, you know, coercive fa family planning and surveillance and maybe forced abortions. I don't really know. Um, well, that policy never applied to the Uyghurs. That was retroactively applied a couple, a few years ago. And that accounted for a slowing of the birth rate of Uyghurs. So that was applied retroactively. This, this, net IUD number that Adrian Zenz, the think tanks and the defense industries named expert on this issue, well, he conflated this percentage, 87%, when the reality was is that he shifted a decimal wrong and did his math wrong, and the real number is 8.7%. So 8.7% of all net IUD insertions in China in that year occurred in Xinjiang and not 87%. So just that mistake right there, and he, he tried to correct the record, but it was the damage was already done. And um, Max Blumenthal and Gareth Porter at the Gray Zone really covered this a whole lot. So the, the people that were rage responding to the LPNH tweet didn't seem aware of the fact that no one is saying that the Uyghurs are being murdered outright. Some people who were a little smarter than others were saying, well, genocide isn't just murdering people, it's also you know, doing these other things. And, you know, the counter to that is, yeah, okay, well, they haven't made that case either. Adrian Zenz going through all the stuff that I just talked about. But also there was this, um, <clears throat> the Uyghur Tribunal, which is a, a bunch of British barristers, they're British attorneys who have formed this, this um, 
NGO, they were presented evidence by Uyghur activist organizations, and they came out with this 64-page report that um, that was gone through by Peter Lee in a, in a piece that the Libertarian Institute published. It's called The Case Against Uyghur Genocide. And Peter Lee goes through that report and goes through how the Uyghur Tribunal actually went through all their evidence in detail, and um, they concluded that none of the five genocide parts that I um, that I listed earlier, that none of them matched the evidence, that none of the evidence was able to meet the burden of proof that they set forward. But they shoehorned in this number four, preventing births. And um, there's there's a lot of contrary evidence. I don't know if there was a defense in this mock trial thing that they had. Uh, but the case was really weak, and Peter Lee goes through and says exactly why. But another conflict of interest to keep in mind is just that the Uyghur Tribunal was funded in large part by the World Uyghur Congress, which in a large part has NED officials on staff and receives funding from the NED. And so there's a lot of suspect things that are going on here. And, and another thing about um, you know this charge of genocide itself in the International Criminal Court, um, which is the court that was um, that was established by the Rome Treaty, and China is not a signatory to the Rome Treaty, so this court that would charge genocide does not have jurisdiction over China because they haven't signed the treaty. Furthermore, the International Criminal Court does not try genocide cases in absentia, which means that in order for them to try a genocide case, there has to be a defendant and the defendant has to be present and has to contest the charges. So if we were to go through any real kind of judicial proceeding about this, one, the court that would do it doesn't have jurisdiction and two, China would have the right to present their own def its own defense, so. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> it kind of sucks. There's not really any good source of information that's reliable, right? You got, you're either trusting the CCP or the state department or this very biased group of people that have political interests against the Chinese government. It, it would be nice if there were some sort of um, independent research that could take place to find out what's actually going on. But right now there's just basically, you can't trust anybody except for what I guess they admit to is the only thing that we're going to know is for sure true. Outside of that, it's a lot of speculation. And I mean, speculation wouldn't be such a big deal if we weren't, you know, making foreign policy decisions based upon those speculations. And we weren't firing up millions of people to feel a certain way about a country based on those speculations. I mean, you could call the WMDs in Iraq speculations because there wasn't proof. And then, I mean, you've probably seen that clip of, uh, Rumsfeld on Stephen Colbert, where he basically admitted that, yeah, of course, we didn't actually know it was intelligence and intelligence is always, you know, iffy or whatever. So, like, I mean, these speculations have serious repercussions on policy and the thoughts of millions of people. So they're not things you can just throw out there and, you know, just without any proof or anything. So that's really what this comes down to is like if if something's going on, you got to have concrete evidence because the repercussions of what you say are really big. Well, and further, furthermore, we know that the these Uyghur genocide claims, and, and specifically the claims of crimes against humanity, which is a different thing than genocide, 
and and actually to respond, there was one person who who I had a back and forth with who was saying that while they're trying to destroy the Uyghur culture, which on some level is might be true. You know, there's more evidence for that than there is for the genocide claim. But destroying a culture is not genocide, right? Because there's a real definition for it. And um, so so furthermore, but one of the reasons why it's so important to analyze this is because the allegation of Uyghur genocide is the crown jewel that justifies U.S. economic sanctions against China. And it was cited directly in, in the newest route of, of, um, of sanctions against China, specifically against forced labor. It's called the Uyghur Force um, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, I believe is the title. And Joe Biden signed it into law and it just was applied in, in June. And it creates a presumption that every single good that is made or manufactured in Xinjiang, in whole or in part, is illegal to sell in the United States unless the United States inspects it. So it's a, it's a rebuttable presumption but the U.S. has to inspect it to affirm that it wasn't made with forced labor, and I think it's clear and convincing evidence. I'm don't quote me on on the burden of proof to get the goods in, but this is a huge, you know, it, and it stifles industry in Xinjiang, and in you know, of course, I'm against any form of forced labor, but you would have to assume that labor in China, that the sale of goods to Xinjiang that are manufactured in Xinjiang probably supports some kind of industry in Xinjiang that people need to rely on to feed their families. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. It's not like this type of issue is ever going to be easy to talk about because people, yeah. what bugs me though is, you know, it's the same thing we're hearing about Ukraine. So, um, every time I hear justification for some sort of intervention or economic sanctions or whatever is like, well, this time it's really important because they're hurting innocent people. It's like, when has that ever not been the excuse for getting involved somewhere like Vietnam? You know, uh, that was one of the big reasons we got to stop communism from spreading around the world or Iraq. You know, um, it wasn't just the WMDs. It was also look at how awful Saddam Hussein is and how his people are being treated. And then with Syria, uh, Libya, you know, all of it. It's always about the innocent people who are getting hurt or whatever. So I think a little bit of callousness is actually what we need. I mean, it's it's just easier to convince people of that. I mean, because I, by nature, actually do care about people all over the world. It, it's kind of my intrinsic uh, feeling. You know, I, I do feel bad for everyone everywhere. But at the end of the day, like, you, you can't do anything. Um, uh, that, that would help, you know, by getting involved militarily. So I think it's easier to kind of weaponize the selfishness and callousness of the American people to be like, look, it sucks, but what are you going to do? You know? And, um, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, I feel like that's why Trump had a little bit of success because, you know, he didn't make the Republicans anti-war by any stretch, but he did kind of shift the Overton window, with what was acceptable and his perspective was much more of the callous, like, what are you going to do? We got to take care of ourselves and we can't worry about everybody else. And what do you think though? Like, do you try to go the humanitarian way or how do you go? I guess it depends on who I'm talking to. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm of the right. So I, 
rely more on the the callous apathy <laughs> i suppose um it, it's hard because people especially libertarians are so anti-communist that they're willing to believe anything that they hear about china right <laughs> and, and that's hard too because you know of course i i don't like communism but i i've become more and more tolerant of it existing because i found that of of the people that we can rely on to be anti-war across the board communists are pretty high up that list um yeah. so it's it's uh it's interesting and you know the more that i've actually looked into china the more that i've i've seen the the counter side is never really presented and i'm not you know denying the horrors of the great leap forward or anything like that but i also like things like that i mean there might be some kind of evidence that it wasn't an intentional thing it was just what happens when you try to put in communism in place you know and I'm sure maybe part of that was intentional. I don't know. I haven't studied it enough, so don't like go jumping down my throat, people, in the comments. But, but there is another Later. side, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and you know and and so it's, but it, it goes back to what Jeff Dice said in that famous, the infamous "Blood and Soil" speech. If people have been in this movement long enough to remember that speech, I think he gave it to to a place in Brazil or in South America or something like that. And Jeff Dice was saying essentially, like, we need to we we need to not be libertarian universalists and try to create a new libertarian man. We have to acknowledge the fact that people around the world have things that matter to them. And things that matter to people are not abstract ideas. It's family, it's God, it's country, mm -hmm. it's blood and soil, is what he said that got him in trouble. Uh, but it's true. We have to realize that people in other parts of the country or, or excuse me, in other parts of the world are going to desire to live under systems that are not libertarian and in, and, and therefore decentralization and self-determination is the goal. Yeah. I mean, I, I see how it's very easy to fall into that trap as a libertarian because, you know, you start realizing how important freedom and liberty is and you want it for everybody and everybody at all costs so much that you're willing to you know carpet bomb a city full of innocent people to spread freedom or like that that's the that's where it ultimately leads to and um i i could see where the logic goes astray like it, it makes sense but um yeah i mean it's one of the hardest pills to swallow about foreign policy is just it sucks like yeah shit is going to happen around the world uh, but getting involved in a military way doesn't fix it. And we have this World War II complex, you know, that everything is Nazi Germany and everything is Imperial Japan, which were both awful uh, dictatorships for sure. But um, we have, you know, because of how that war went and just the way the 20th century was shaped around it, we just think of everything has to be World War II. It has to be ultimate surrender it has to be, you know, America taking the front stage and leading the world. And it's just not true. Like, I mean, every war since World War II, um, you know, most of them have been disasters, you know, like all of them have been. I mean, they even it, and I wouldn't, you know, I, I know we have kind of unpopular opinions about World War II to most people. Like, I think we could have stayed out of it. But even if you're going to consider World War II a success, it's really hard to claim the rest, you know, have been since then. So this idea that America has to take the front stage and just obliterate all opposition is, I don't know. It's just really unhealthy. Um, especially now. Like, I mean, I think it's just super obvious that it doesn't work. 
Well, and even the notion that we have the moral ability to is is suspect because I, you know, Dave Smith was in this um, the shit show of a YouTube debate with I forget the Sitch or somebody on on YouTube this week. I did catch that, but they kept saying "What aboutism?" You know, um, which I think is um, when you're adding context to a certain situation. This claim of "What aboutism?" is just what petulant children do. Um, but but it really is. What position is the United States to be lecturing China on human rights? I mean, yeah. we just slaughtered Muslims wholesale for the last 30 years. Um, and, and in addition, right now, the United States has Afghans in prison camps, essentially, in Kosovo, because after we withdrew from Afghanistan, there were tons of Afghans that we had recruited to be part of the Kabul government. And now we couldn't just leave them behind. So because there would be rep reprisals. So now we took them and they're sitting in a prison camp in Kosovo and there's talks of bringing them to Guantanamo. Wait, that was the Haitians. Sorry. We were going to put the Haitians in Guantanamo Bay after we go in and save them from uh, all of the, you know, all the gangs that are ruling the country because we've been intervening in that country for the last century. Um, but I, we literally, I mean, we have Afghans in these facilities and they're there indefinitely and they can't leave, you know? And so, uh, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Um, you know, the funny thing is I've, you said just America should look at itself more. Um, <laughs> I, you know, all this talk about Putin maybe going to use a tactical nuke or something, which he has said he's not planning to, but if he did, you know, who in the world in history has actually dropped nukes on civilians? Like, just the United States were the only ones who have done it. So just the hypocrisy is kind of uh, is kind of amazing. Um, just to finish up on China, um, you know, I know you and I really were unimpressed with Blake Masters because of things he was saying about China. But I just want to talk about the, 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 the hubris of, you know, being upset that the Chinese are upset that we're doing drills in the South China Sea and sailing warships through the Taiwan Strait. I mean, if the shoe were on the other foot and China were sailing ships between Cuba and Florida and, uh, you know, right up to the coast of California, we would not have that. And I talked to Scott Horton about this a little bit. Rex Tillerson, when he was secretary of state, he was saying that China is threatening the United States dominance of the Pacific Ocean, not the United States or the United States allies, just the dominance of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, so to act like China is going to be landing on the California beaches uh, or to be upset that they're, you know, pissed off at us at all while we're doing all this really inflammatory stuff is just kind of hilarious. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the the sheer ridiculousness of Blake Masters to claim in that Dave Smith interview that you know, or suggest the possibility that China might be landing soldiers on the coast of California. Now, I replayed that segment of the interview like three times to make sure that I heard it right, because I wanted to see if I if there was any sarcasm in that, and I didn't really pick up any sarcasm in it. Um, but but the the obvious quip to that, or the obvious response to that, is well, listen, there's only one country who's sailing warships off the other country's coast, 
and that is the United States sailing warships off the coast of China. Now, the Taiwan Strait, I, I think at its closest point, is 100 kilometers off the coast of mainland China. And the U.S. sails their warships on the Taiwan side, but there's a median line. And so presumably the median line is an artificial line that I believe we created between Taiwan and China. So the U.S. warships are sailing in between the median line and the coast of Taiwan, which goes to, I mean, goes to reason that they're maybe 80 kilometers, maybe 60 kilometers off the coast of mainland China. That's really damn close. And, and we're sailing warships through that strait at least around once, once a month. And, and that's pretty often. So yeah, it's just, I, I mean, I saw, I did see a map the other day that it took the number of military bases that are near to China and superimposed them on the coast of the United States and proposed the question of like, well, what would our response be to this situation? And it's, it's absurd. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the thing that's funny is a lot of right wingers can see that this is going on with Russia. They're like, why, you know, it's thousands of miles from us. We're right on their border. Like, why do we care? <laughs> but if it's to our west instead of to our east, then it's an issue for some reason. Um, so it's I even talk further east. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, further I, east, technically. I, yeah, I think yeah. the reason for that is, you know, is that you and I, Reed, we've grown up hating China our whole lives. I mean, there's always been jokes about, oh, Chinese crap made. You know, if you're a blue-collar guy, it's always the joke that, oh, we have these shit products that are from China, and China's ripping us off and all this stuff. It was really kind of weaponized by Donald Trump, but I really think that's it, at least for, for the right wing, is, you know, your dad growing up your whole life talking about cheap shit from China or cheap Chinese tools or parts that are from China that suck. You know, it, it's it, it's so easy for people to to glob onto this. Yeah, it is. I mean, but it also exists with Russia. And for some reason, right wingers who are historically really hawkish on Russia, they've been able to snap out of it. I don't know if it's just because the left has been so retarded on it the last several years or what. But, um, you know, I, I said earlier, the left doesn't really have much of a difference of position on China from the right. And I meant the mainstream left. Like there are some people like Abby Martin or Max Blumenthal who are informed on this and know what's going on. But if we're just talking about the typical binary left and right in America, the left hates Russia and the right is kind of ambivalent about it. It doesn't really understand why they hate them so much, but then China, most of the left and the right both hate China. Like, I mean, your average liberal isn't going to say anything good about China. You know, I mean, the, the amount of people who are anti-war leftists or tankies is pretty, you know, pretty small. Um, but uh, yeah, so let's talk about Russia a little bit. So yesterday, um, so my understanding so far is that Russia uh, launched an attack on Ukraine and Ukraine sent an anti- uh, or sent a missile to intercept a Russian missile and it landed in uh, Poland and killed two people. Is that accurate? Is that what you know happened so far? Well, I, I've been pretty busy with work this week, so I haven't been able to follow it as close as some, but that is roughly my understanding of what we know in a situation that where the facts are not clear at the moment. Um, I do know that it seems like Zelensky has 
kind of kept on this narrative that it was a Russian missile that, that hit Poland. But from my understanding, it seems like Dave DeCamp, you know, he was saying in his episode from today, yesterday, last night, saying that it was, it seemed like it was an S 300 rocket that some people had analyzed the parts and it might've been, you know, even if it is a rocket of Russian make Ukrainians still have a large number of Russian missiles that, you know, that are left over that are Russian manufactured. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It really just seems like if you just look at the facts, right? I mean, this is on the far Western side of Ukraine. It's very close to Polish. You know, if it was an intentional Russian attack, which I don't think there's evidence for, but it seems like Ukraine might be putting forward. Uh, when, why attack Poland for such low stakes? Why not hit a right. NATO base in Poland or something like that? Why hit two civilians in a rural area with an anti-air missile or some some something to that effect? Now, maybe it was a mistake. If it was a mistake, I, that's another thing. I mean, it, it doesn't. It's not an attack where I would I could see that you could. If it was an attack, you have a case for Article Five, possibly. So it just doesn't. Yeah. So yeah, how does that work? If it <laughs> so it has to be an intentional attack for Article Five. If it's a mistake, it doesn't trigger Article Five. Is that how that works? Well, I mean. <sighs> Along with everything in the law, there's no definite answer. It's uh, it depends, or how can we construe this? So I, I would say the case for invoking Article Five would be stronger if it was an intentional attack. Got I don't, so- I don't know if it's actually. I don't have the text of Article Five in front of me, but from what I understand, if if member countries, this is just my rough understanding, if if member countries believe that they're Ter- the their state is threatened by an external force they can invoke article 4 which convenes a meeting where they debate and make their case for why article 5 has been triggered gotcha because i saw a lot of people last night saying this is article 5 this you know we have to answer the call blah 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 and then they found out it was ukraine and i was like so is this still trigger an article five? <laughs> Do we have to, does NATO have to go into war against Ukraine now? <laughs> like this is, this wasn't how I was expecting to arrive at peace with Russia, but you know, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> we all ally with Russia to destroy the rest of Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's amazing seeing the propaganda machine. That's really, I mean, it's really pushing us closer to, you know, direct hot war with Russia. And I can't believe it because I'll be honest when this all started unfolding, first of all, I didn't think Russia was actually going to invade. I was one of those people. Um, But then after this, you know, after everything started unfolding, I was like, okay, come on. There's no way anyone's this stupid and actually wants direct war between the United States and Russia. I mean, there's just no way, but I mean, at every turn I've been proven wrong. I mean, every possible escalation aside from attacking Russia has happened. <laughs> you know, like it's just more. And I mean, what's the, what is it like a $38 billion bill or something that they're proposing right now to send to Ukraine somewhere around there? Yeah. And I mean, they were talking about passing either a 50 or $60 billion bill just to cover in advance next year. And, and, but that was being discussed during the late, That was being discussed before the midterms to be passed during the lame duck session. And now I don't know if they've figured that while they still have enough support in the house that they can pass everything that they want, 
but it seems like Kev, I think his name is Kevin McCarthy was going to be the new house minority leader. And he made a statement saying, well, if under a Republican controlled house, they're not just going to be willing to write a blank check for Ukraine. And then, so all the establishment freaked out and they wanted to get their Ukraine aid passed uh, beforehand in the lame duck session before the, the handover of, of the Congress. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just an immense amount of money. I mean, we, we've already made, people have, have said that our spending on Ukraine, our aid to Ukraine has surpassed the Russian military budget, I think for 2020 or 2019. Yep. Um, that's not defense spending. It's not that U.S. direct kinetic aid has surpassed the Russian military budget. It's the total aid the total aid, including the budgetary support for all the welfare programs in Ukraine, uh, basically all the money that without this money, the Ukraine government would collapse. And so people have made the argument to me, especially when I was doing my TikTok videos every day, they were saying, well, it should be up to Ukraine whether or not they end the war. And it's like, no, motherfucker. <laughs> like if, if the entire Ukrainian war effort wouldn't exist without support from the United States and the U S taxpayer. I think that we should have a say <laughs> we, we do de facto, right? Because if we stop doing that, they would have to have peace because the government would implode. So yeah. Ha have you listened to Douglas McGregor a, a bit? Like when he goes on Scott Horton or I Judge haven't McCall heard him on Scott Horton. He was on with Tulsi Gabbard, right on Fox news. Uh, a couple nights ago, I didn't see that, but I've been I've been following Douglas McGregor. He goes on with Judge Napolitano, yeah, pretty often. Him it, and Scott actually, Ritter both, yeah. Well, McGregor has a YouTube channel where all he does is he twenty four seven live streams his recent interviews that he's had. So if mm -hmm. you just go on YouTube and find that, but he he is talking a lot about the the Russian winter offensive, and I've found. You know, McGregor has inside information. He still has sources from his time in the military on the ground. So I would say he's probably putting pieces together with that. I found McGregor to be like very pro-Rush. It seems like he's pro-Russian in a way that I'm not saying he's a Russian apologist, just that he, his conclusions about the situation is that Russia is going to steamroll Ukraine. And he's right. saying that the Ukrainian government can't exist for more than two more months and that the situation is really dire. And so that's fueled a lot of the speculation about that. The U S seems to be turning around and being open to diploma to diplomacy. You had Mark Milley, I believe it was a few days ago in a speech saying that Ukraine should, that this is our chance for peace this winter, that the escalations are going to go down, right? Um, that the fighting is going to go down, that Ukraine can rest and rearm and get ready for more offensives in the spring. But now we have our chance. We've just retaken Kherson. The Ukrainian military has. We need to press the advantage now and sue for peace and come up with a negotiated settlement. But of course, you get the establishment like Blinken and what's left of Joe Biden and everyone else talking about no, we're we're not listening to what Mark Milley says. The Ukrainians need to fight on and press on and and not negotiate. So, but you do have some like um you have the 
what was it uh the cia had i'm forgetting his name discussed with his his russian counterpart was that in um ankara in turkey they had some talks this week i don't know exactly what's come of them but scott had a thread on twitter today where he was saying how he was worried about these talks because it it might mean that this war is going to get a lot more serious this winter great just what we wanted to hear yeah um yeah so what do you what do you think about so donald trump announced he's running for president again last night which was not surprising at all i watched his whole speech i was pretty underwhelmed i can't lie i mean and and i wanted him to run again <laughs> like i i want to see it like i think it's funny but man he's not he's not the same guy he was seven years ago when he announced the first time um and uh it's really interesting watching the right wing line up behind DeSantis and some still line up behind Trump. And I think that DeSantis is their dream candidate because he's got everything that most people like on the surface about Trump. Like he's got his kind of brash, tough guy personality, but then he's also, you know, I mean, he's an institutionalized person through and through um you know he's a and he definitely is an imperialist through and through if you look at his voting record while he was in congress um so i feel like most people are going to prefer him but it seems like some neoconish people are staying in line with trump just in case he wins because trump really values loyalty and so they know they could still stay in you know his inner circle if they line up behind him but what do you think um what are, are you hopeful at all for if the Republicans take things over that things are going to go in a slightly different direction or do you think they're going to be the same I just talked with uh Jackson Hinkle earlier today very interesting guy by the way it was a really fun interview and as much as I don't like Trump and as much as I've criticized him and as much as I you know just blasted him while he was in office because I think you should do that to anyone who's in office even you know even if Rand Paul became the president and he did something bad. I think everyone should be holding, you know, their elected officials accountable. Um, as much, as much as I think he really fucked just about everything up nine times out of 10, there was that one time out of 10 where he would do something that was like, Whoa, that is definitely not what the neocons wanted to do. He obviously had a little bit of an incentive to be against just starting the next war and, you know, just plowing straight ahead at all costs. Like, he he was talked into doing a lot of dumb shit, like airstriking Soleimani and, uh, you know, putting more troops in Afghanistan. But you could tell that there was something about him that was like, eh, I just, I don't know, I don't really feel like I'm that big on this, regardless of what it was, whether it was, um, you know, being super pro-Israel or super pro-Saudi Arabia or... Uh, you know, super hawkish on Iran. Like he, he definitely had this ego thing where he likes to be the big tough guy in the room and he likes everyone to praise him all the time. So that was, that seemed to be what ultimately led him to doing all this stupid shit. But you could tell there's a little inkling in the guy that was like, yeah, I'm not so sure about this, or this seems kind of dumb where I don't see that at all with DeSantis. Like, I think he's just the, I think he's the 10 out of 10 will do the 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 bad thing that we wouldn't want him to do on a foreign policy level. Um 
And there's this like, I, I don't think Trump's learned his lesson just based off the endorsements he's made and the way he's still acting and, you know, the the direction he's heading in already. I don't feel like he's learned his lesson at all. But there's a tiny part of me that's like, OK, what if this guy is really, really mad and he remembers that Netanyahu burned him and, you know, congratulated Biden before the counts were done? Um, or who remembers that everyone lied to him about Syria and Afghanistan. Like there's this little part of me that's like, man, it would be great if he got back in there and just went on a revenge tour and just started like tearing everything down. I don't think he will. I mean, like 98% sure he wouldn't, but there's like a tiny percent chance that I think he would compared to anyone else. What What do you think? Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, like electoral politics isn't really my forte, but I I've really been at a loss in trying for I don't know, a year now to try to figure out exactly how as anti-war libertarians we should treat the populist right. And I've wrote a lot of pieces on it. Um I mean, I I think I would prefer Donald Trump to Ron DeSantis. Uh, because I think we know what Trump is and we think we, we have suspicions about what Ron DeSantis is. And a lot of them are very bad, at least in my opinion. I mean, there's a possibility he might've been the legal oversight for torture programs. Like I, I was listening to Robbie Martin and, and Abby on, on media roots. Robbie was talking about the research that he's done into DeSantis's past because his military experience is just a big question mark. Uh, but we, I believe, and I'm going off of what Robbie said, but he said that DeSantis was like the legal counsel for the detainee program in Fallujah. So he was, he was part of the, I think it was the JAG Corps, I would assume, but he was probably responsible either for the rules of engagement or for the handling of, of prisoners. And I don't know if Robbie said something about him being a legal advisor or counsel for the, the Guantanamo program. I'm not sure about that. So don't quote me on it, but uh, I have these suspicions of, of, you know, his, his intelligence involvement. And so now in terms of Trump, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I just don't know. Like, I'm really excited to see the battle between the two of them. If, if it really gets to that, but some yeah. people have, some people have, um, I don't know, speculated that Trump is getting in the campaign to catapult DeSantis's campaign. I don't know. That's just, Oh, it's all a big scheme. huh? Yeah. It's for 12 D chess, just speculatives. I, I don't really know. Yeah. See, like I, I never thought that Trump was like official controlled opposition. I felt like he, he was a, an idiot who filled that role, but I do think he is like legitimately a rogue character. I don't think, he was supposed to be there and that he was supposed to be Hillary Clinton. I think that was all by accident. And then they were like, okay, dumbass. Now that you've won, sign this and sign this and sign this. And okay, now we're going to, you know, and then they just kind of controlled him, but he, I could tell they still don't like him being in there. I mean, they obviously have some aversion to him and it's because at the end of the day, he's just a, he's like playing a hot potato with a, an unpinned hand grenade, you know, it's just like, Oh my God, what is he going to do? So if, I mean, I'm not, I'm not endorsing him by the way, and I won't be campaigning for him and I won't vote for him. But if it comes down to DeSantis, Obama or Trump at this point, I would absolutely take Trump because 
I think it's the more accelerationist thing now. Like, I, I do think getting yeah. Biden in 2020 was more accelerationist than getting Trump reelected. But now that he'd be making a return and everything that's happened over the last couple of years, it absolutely seems like it would be more of, you know, an apocalyptic thing if he got back in there. I don't know if he can win anymore. Like, I, I the midterms really shocked me with how everything turned out. I was expecting just a, a red sweep and we didn't get that. So I don't really know, you know, what I don't really know how to read the political landscape anymore. I thought I had a kind of had my finger on the pulse, but I guess not. But it's going to be interesting for sure to see how that all unfolds. Um, if, I mean, if, I, if I could, like the 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 whole midterm thing, maybe some of the takeaways are I, I've thought about this and I've heard some people saying this that one abortion matters a lot more to people than people think. Yep. Um, abortion rights i'll put in quotes because i'm i'm pro-life myself but um on the other hand maybe it's a wholesale rejection of the importance of the culture war is that maybe to most people the culture war is not the most important thing to them and i think a lot of this hope behind the red wave was built behind these things like groomers you know in in elementary schools that yeah us living on in online bubbles were so inundated with this you know they're stealing your children and they're teaching them sex and and they're going to make them gay and stuff like that and taking them to strip clubs maybe that really didn't resonate with people as much as it did with some so yeah no i think you're right i mean we're kind of in a bubble on twitter and you know interacting with the people we interact with i mean and twitter and just being online in general tends to be magnetic toward the sensational you know like that's that's that that's more what uh, gets drawn out online so it's probably not an accurate representation of what people actually care about yeah i mean maybe there's just one or two percent of people in the entire country who are even aware of this strip club you know the the drag queen story hour stuff or yeah. aware to the point of it where they're really mad about it because yeah. you know we see a video go viral on you know libs of TikTok, and maybe it's just got a million views well that's less than one percent of all americans i i don't know it's hard to keep things in perspective yeah it is well thanks for coming on man um always good to talk to you hopefully we cross paths soon again like you said we got to meet up twice this year it's been great um anything you want to plug that you got coming up any interesting episodes or any events you're going to or anything or any final thoughts you want to add yeah, yeah. Well, um, thanks for having me on again. Uh, we need to get together and, and shoot some guns again because yeah. I, I want to talk about that more on like the show, but it's not what I talk about on the show. So, um, But yeah, vitaldescent.com is the new website. It's a .com, which is great. Other than that, libertarianinstitute.org. Um, I'm going out of town for Thanksgiving to my in-laws for like 10 days, so I'm going to be a little uh, down and out a little bit. But trying to get content out before then and then hit it hard afterwards as well. So thanks Reed. Yeah. Uh, well, you got to come to pork fest and then we'll go shooting for a whole day. I'll bring all my world war two guns and you can bring all yours and we'll, we'll film it and make a little like mini documentary out of it. So it'll be yeah. a good time. Yeah. That'll be cool, man. <laughs> all right, man. Uh, yeah. Everyone. Thank you for watching. If you're new to the show, please subscribe and make sure you go down Look in the description. I've got Patrick's. I got to actually, if you're watching this live on YouTube, I got to fix his Twitter because he changed he changed his name from Liberty Weekly. So 
you know, nothing works anymore down there. So I got to, yeah. uh, I got to relink his Twitter, but you got his YouTube, his website. And I also linked his uh, documentary stain of the century where he's, where he actually goes over in depth, the Uyghur situation that we were talking about at the beginning of the show. So please go check that out. That'll really give you a different perspective on it. That really shifted my perspective on it. Cause I remember for months I'd heard about it and I'd seen like Scott Horton being skeptical about it, but I, I didn't really know what was going on. I went and watched that documentary and it's the best thing I've seen about it. So go check it out and uh, also follow me on um, all the other platforms in the link tree. Cause who knows how long I'll have YouTube. Uh, we'll catch you guys on the next episode.